here we are again, reading this, expecting something, a story perhaps, or someone singing themselves to sleep. You ready? And I am ready too. Have you been waiting long? I have Frankensteined it for you, bundled it all up, because it's nice to put pictures inside people's heads, like frogs and Ronin and Cleveland and Dolores. Here is a place for it to happen. Hello and welcome dear listeners, I'm Shabha Bhatt and this is an all new episode of Carrero and Beyond, a podcast series brought to you by Pinnacle, the Department of Beer Program, Miranda House. And that was an extract from Richard Sykin's editor's note, the long and short of it, for Spark Press. Well, our guest for today's episode is Kashvi Chandok, a student researcher and writer who has conducted extensive research on issues of international relations, refugee crisis, women's rights, and climate change. She is recognized by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees as one of the seven young changemakers from all across the world. She is also serving as a journalist representative in an endeavor of the UN Women and the office of OHCHR. Being a prolific writer, she is also the founding editor-in-chief of the Remnant Archive and her poems have been published in the Bombay Literary Magazine, the Rights Collective and Rust and Moth Literary Journal among others. Kashvi, we are truly honoured and delighted to have you on board with us today. Thank you, Shubha. Moving ahead, my first question to you would be, the creativity and insights of your work have truly appealed and intrigued us all. The other day I was reading an article where you were featured and it mentioned how volunteering in refugee camps has let you build a community that has stayed with you throughout. We would love to know about this journey. When and how did your association with refugee women in New Delhi begin? Well, thank you for the question, Shubha. Um, I think my association with marginalized communities in general stems from the kind of values that I've grown up. And as cliched as that sounds, to be entirely honest, I think I was always this person. So in school, I didn't have a lot of opportunity, but college and the freedom that Delhi University provides, and I think you might relate with it, and a lot of listeners who are from Delhi University um, would know that, you know, the the university gives you a lot of space to practice other art forms, whether that's extracurriculars, volunteering, go to protest, or just voice your own opinions. So this really made it possible for me to be involved in social work. And I remember volunteering to teach kids from low-income backgrounds in my first semester before, you know, the pandemic happened and the world shut down. But that experience itself was so fruitful. I truly, truly enjoyed being surrounded by those kids and sharing that sense of empowerment. So ever since, I was just hoping that after the second lockdown that I was just hoping to volunteer to work on ground again. And that was made possible by the Peace Building Project, which is an international organization. And they are running a program with UNDP um, for Afghan refugee women in Malganagar. And my role as a woman of certain privilege um, just made me understand that to tackle structural patriarchal systems, as women, we have to become self-reliant in earning our own living. 
So walking alongside UNDP Asia and Peace Building Project, I've been implementing a human mobility project to build capacity and self-reliance for Afghan refugee women in the production of environmentally friendly sanitary napkins. So, so far, I have personally worked with 30 refugees and I've also conducted marketing and communications, public speaking workshops with them, which just help them feel more empowered and to feel valued and attach monetary worth to their labor and time. And the thing with refugee communities, not just the refugee communities, but also with a lot of communities in South Asia, is that women live in environments where they are expected to follow orders or yeah, and accept subordination, right? So, mm-hmm. and a lot of young people, young population who might be liberating uh, opinions, but they are also pressured by adults and also by their, by their peers to adhere to certain gender norms. And this project of young women, 13 age above, being self-reliant and to also abolish the taboos related to menstrual hygiene was very, very important. And alongside the workshop that we're doing on confidence building and just to instill that value that they deserve equal rights and representations despite not being from the country, despite not holding a citizenship card in this country, they still deserve basic human rights that everyone else deserves. So this was the entire project model that we are building. That is truly insightful to hear, Kashmi. Uh, I feel that the process of evaluating our journey is always special, and you've genuinely answered it really, really gracefully. Uh, moving forward, you have also been volunteering and leading workshops with refugee women. Uh, so what, according to you, are the major challenges that you feel that your team faces while coming with these uh, sustainable models of menstrual health uh, management? So one of the first challenges that you might think or just anyone would think when it comes to a menstrual hygiene project is that of the taboo around the theme of menstruation and feminine hygiene, right? And we thought this too. We thought that just breaking the shackles of taboo first and to initiate that first conversation that, hey, it's okay to talk about periods and menstruation would be really hard. But surprisingly, and this is just such a positive um, thing that we noticed, that the women that we work with turned out to be extremely progressive and our team itself comprised of only women volunteers. So I guess having that shared understanding of the nuances of what it means to be a woman in a patriarchal society and to also share similar biological and mental experiences just made them more comfortable in talking to us and being involved in the project. Um, Another thing that I think we noticed and something that I would like to share, and that's again something that's not just limited to these women or these refugee communities, but I think a lot of communities around South Asia, is that um, women um, didn't really have a cell phone or a mobile phone of their own. And yeah. they were always surrounded by a male presence if they wanted to contact somebody. Right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that just takes away the power of being an individual and making decisions or even maintaining contact with your friends, with your peers or whoever. And yes. the fact that women didn't really have that. So sharing pictures with them or sharing information or even knowing about their whereabouts was so difficult because they didn't have the mobile phones and the mobile phones always went to the eldest son or the husband. And so that was something that sort of was difficult. But 
other things that I would like to highlight about the problems that refugees face, particularly because of the structural barriers, is that the lack of clarity regarding refugee legal status is a big issue. So even the women that we worked with, not all of them were UNHCR blue card holders. So a blue card okay. by UNHCR um, certifies that you're a refugee staying here. It, it sort of works like an identity card. And it also helps you get jobs or to complete your education with UNHCR education partners. So a lot um, of women don't really have that. And that coupled with lack of identity documents just makes it so much harder for them to find jobs in the formal sector to complete their education. And that is why a lot of them work in the unorganized sector with no legal rights, job security or regular income. And so we just felt like we have to initiate a project where we make women feel self-reliant. And I feel that imparting skills is the best way that we can share our privilege and knowledge. So yeah. this was all our project was about, yeah. Okay, uh, I must say that you, along with other volunteers, are doing incredible job. And uh, moving forward, I would like to inform our dear listeners that, as mentioned before, Kashmi is also representing India in the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women, that is UN Women. And uh, interestingly, Kashmi, you are the youngest journalist member in that pool of 40 selected applicants from all over Asia Pacific. So how has that experience been so far? And how is it different from what you do at uh, UNHCR? Um, Thanks for that question. I think it it has truly been the best experience. Just the fact that I'm able to interact with senior program specialist at UN Women and OHCHR and also with special drafters on various sections of human rights um, yeah. was the biggest learning experience. And I think the best part was that being involved in that program made me gain a community of sister journalists and activists from across Asia, from across the region. And the way that we worked in the program was that we used to have meetings every three weeks and we used to discuss and set agendas like digital safety, um, CEDAW, which is the uh, Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, and other various treaties or UN reprisal mechanisms to protect and foster the spirit of journalism. So this was the way that we went and we used to have a lot of healthy discussions, uh, highlighting issues that we face in our own countries and also other journalists face in our own countries. And has been such a learning experience and has also taught me the power of community building. And especially when we know that the countries in the region are not all democracies, not all countries in Asia believe in human rights. Yeah. Not all of them give the chance to journalists, activists or the citizens to voice their opinions. So when we are in a space, in a region where we share boundaries, where we share cultures, So it's also important for us to take the responsibility to stand up for other countries, our national boundaries, and also human rights infringements happening outside of it. And that was one of the biggest learning experiences because Asia in general does not see the cohesiveness that other continents sees when it comes to human rights infringements. We don't, we aren't really taught to stand up for other countries. And so that was something that was very brilliant and just very important to come out of this. And now we have established a community of practice. And I think it's UN Women, Women's First Asian Community of Practice, where we have these 40 journalists, all of us coming together. 
um, sharing our stories, sharing certain issues, just to build and amplify whatever we want to say on a national level and bring that to an international level. And yeah. Okay, it is so brilliant to hear to all of this. And I'm sure your experiences are inspiring our listeners out there. Moving ahead, you have been named as one of the seven change makers, as you mentioned, uh, who are taking actions for refugees in their communities. So how do recognitions like these motivate you to go ahead and uh, pursue your future goals? I'd say that it's incredibly motivating, to say the least, um, to be interviewed by UNHCR headquarters, um, being part of a youth focus group and consulting them on the matters relating to fundraising or building resilience within refugee community has been one of the most rewarding experience. Also because of the pandemic, I right. just that a lot of the things that I was researching on, a lot of the things that I was being involved during this time uh, was suddenly yeah. being heard. And that's something that I uh, mentioned to the authorities at UNHCR as well, that, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of organizations talk about being youth friendly, involving more youth voices, but they never really do that. And for UNHCR to have a specific youth focus group from, you know, and the youth focus group also consists of refugees as well. So refugee supporters and refugees forming a group of young people and consulting UNHCRs on very important matters, creating fundraisers, um, <clears throat> just being part in the uh, advocacy campaign is so, so important. And that's such an important step. And yeah, it's been incredibly motivating. But I've just also learned as a person that um, as, as also someone who indulges in social volunteering a lot, that a lot of time you won't get recognition for your work. And so recognitions were never really a driving force as such. And although these are incredibly motivating, um, I just generally believe that acknowledging your privilege and also sharing that with others is the only way to exist as, as a rational human being. Um, yeah, so so as as much as I like them, these are not really the driving force, but I really, really appreciate them. Yeah. Great. Kashmir, uh, you are truly someone who I personally look up to, and your work has genuinely directed people like me to embrace wider perspectives. Uh, so I even happened to discover you through one of your passion projects and online journal where you served as the founding EIC. So I'm rather curious how, with everything else going on at the professional front, you managed to run such brilliant passion projects. And like, so tell us about them and how do you manage time altogether? Um, oh, where to start? I'm so happy, first of all, that you discovered me through TRA because it's my <laughs> most beloved um, project, something that I'm so proud and something that I'm so deeply passionate about. <laughs> Um, yeah, I must say that 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 is reflected when you you know do such live sessions. You recently did one, and I could see that. Yeah, <laughs> I know I could see that within myself. I'm so happy when I talk about theater. Um, but I feel like I've been all over the place with my passion projects so far. I think that's what being a student does to you. Yeah, but it was actually something that I've been meaning to do for as long as I can remember. So, but it was only in my first year of college that I decided that I'm ready to start an online journal. 
and dedicate my time to build this magazine as a quality hub for literature and arts and as someone who enters a field if i don't feel i'm ready or good enough to give opinions to other people so i spent i remember d- during that period just writing a lot myself and furnishing my own writing skills and learning from the other editors that i was working with and just imbibing all of that process so that you know moving forward if i'm in a position to give other people editing suggestions or any any form of advices i should be able to do that as a person who has come from experience it's something that i went in in a very structured manner that i wanted to build my own writing at a place where it was stable enough that i could suggest other people about it so i went in with a very structured manner but when i felt that you know i had just enough confidence and i felt that maybe i could do this then i just got yeah. together with two of my friends who were also the co-founders but i think all said and done everything just translates back to literature for me so tra has been sort of a relaxing mechanism and also i could just say that because i don't feel like when i'm editing or pitching to investors like i'm walking so it just stems from a very pure and very uh, space of passion Yeah that's truly fabulous. Well, I was introduced to online magazines very recently and as you said, I like you cherish the creativity and expression that blooms via these publications. So why not just like delve more into the Ramnant archive and uh, we would love to know the initial ideas and the eventual conceptualization that brought this new age journal. So how the Ramnant archive came into being? that's something i've pondered myself a lot of times and it seems surreal the kind of work that we're doing and the kind of recognition that our writers are getting from people and it just makes my heart so happy every time i see someone post something on the stories that's been posted on the remnant archive or you know just something that someone's read on our blog it's it's just the most beautiful feeling and purest feeling i think and it's sort of my most cherished stuff that i've done in my life and so the thought process behind the establishment of the remnant archive was initially to preserve memory through art form that was the title that was the motto that we started with and when i say we i mean the two people that i started with um my closest friends nehal and arsha shout out to them and it's only been possible because of them because i always wanted to start a magazine i always wanted to start something um just like remnant archive but i feel like i just wanted that push and um when like all three of us came together it just felt so right and um, it's only the women in your life who push you to do great things and these two women are phenomenal remnant archive is nothing without them and without the other staff members who have come on board and helped us as well so it's truly a very collaborative effort but you know we just felt like that there's memories of grief loss celebration that linger amongst all of us and to start diary we wanted to honor those memories and those experiences that shaped us and fed our art so we were very interested in figuring out how memories how our idea of self and our idea of others influence our art and writing and the name the dr name began from there because you know remnant means a part or a quantity that is left behind an archive is sort of a repository or collection and it just fits so well together so 
we just wanted to build like a pandora box of such memories and that's how we started and since then it's been quite a journey i mean we've had writers from india spain pakistan united kingdom and we've had writers from over 12 countries contribute to our issues and readership from i don't know how many places but it's just been extremely phenomenal the kind of community that we are able to build because of this yeah it's actually you know listening to the story from the other side it's it's truly so brilliant to actually you know tell you how i'm feeling right now because i've been following tra from quite a uh, few months now and i think it's truly an honor to listen to this from you I'm yourself so, so happy to hear that shubha thank you thank you for your support kashmi your poems have been published in several award winning literary magazines so what is the one thing about the digital publishing spaces that has stayed with you and you'd like to share with our audience i feel like digital publishing spaces are um places where predominant gatekeeping of publishing houses is not practiced as often um yeah. because the entire industry of writing of publishing is so gatekeeping in the sense that the information of how to pitch uh, where to get published how to reach the editors is just stored within the knowledge of few individuals right and for that yeah. you have to work really really hard and just break your way into the network so i feel like digital publishing spaces just give young writers who might have equal talent and also hold over their art form um a chance to showcase their work which otherwise they wouldn't have gotten so i think that's one of the biggest aspects why digital publishing spaces are so beloved amongst people and also because i think they they bring in a relatability factor to it where a lot of digital spaces are run by young people so a lot of young people on the social media resonate with the kind of work that they put out and resonate with the kind yeah. of work that they write so yeah. i think there's a huge relatability factor in those spaces and i feel that's why they are so loved but apart from that i also feel that digital spaces are much more personal um yeah. especially like small presses and that's been my experience as well to writing and submitting to other journals where the feedback that i've gotten is so personal and it's so yeah. profound that it just made the entire process even if it was a rejection it just made the entire process so worthy because i felt like oh so someone took out the time to read my work and they suggested these options and how to like better my craft it makes the entire process so much better for you as a writer yeah yeah truly i read somewhere very recently that it's a great time to be a magazine lover and i couldn't have agreed more of uh, these publications that are coming up are so brilliant and it truly fills my heart with joy to go through them finally moving on to the last segment my next question is definitely the most anticipated one what would be your message to the people out there who want to contribute to their communities by bringing change um well i'm a writer so i'll say that you know change happens not in a fickle second but in multiple waves of influence so yeah. i say this to a lot of people that start by writing so if you are in a space where you think that you cannot go out and volunteer or you cannot intern somewhere so start by writing so 
and we have created an atmosphere where journalism is treated as a denigrated form but it is truly writing um, about issues that makes people being informed citizens and that's where i did my start as well just yeah. writing about issues and i remember one of my first um writing task was about writing about gender and health in india and from there i got to know so many things about menstrual health and um also the environmental effects of using uh, sanitary pads and that information became so much more useful when i'm now implementing a project based on that and back then i would have never thought that i would actually be able to do something on ground about it but you never know the things that you read um when would that information come in handy and they always come in handy that's the thing about reading and writing actually is just reading a lot of text and just figuring out the condensed version of it so it's the best form to practice research and you do not have to be associated with a news agency or known platforms um but like utilize the power of platforms like medium which allow you to start yeah. your own blog and yeah. um i'd also say that the best thing to come out of this when you're starting your own blog is that people might listen to your opinions um but the worst outcome would be that you listen to your opinions right so you really have yeah. nothing to lose at all yeah. so i say the start by writing but apart from that i think um making a difference as a young person is all about ensuring that one's privilege is relegated to others in forms of knowledge transmission imparting legal rights knowledge or just creating self sustaining opportunities for people or communities um that can be mobilized through education so if you are someone who can go out and volunteer then these should be the aspects that you should do instead of just in involving yourself in donation or charity work but creating yeah. a model where people can be self sustained whether that's an education model or whether that's uh doing uh and creating an economic opportunity model So I think these would be the issues that I would say the young people can involve themselves in and these are the issues that actually cause material change on ground. That's truly a significant message. Before we wrap up, uh we would love to listen to a snippet from one of your poems if you are comfortable reciting one for us. All right. Um but a little information that my poems are usually not in terms of spoken form. Yeah. So I'll read it for you but I don't know how it will sound. It will be beautiful I'm sure. All right. So this poem's called Salt. For too long I have peddled salt against rock, rubbing its sharp edges with my silken flesh till I knew the taste of oceans way better than my own mouth. Mother, I know how you grieve in silence, a language passed on to you by the women in your family. I also know how much you hate the smell of oranges when they go bad. The smell of rancid flesh retiring a bitter tangy hue in the air. Not realizing that it is our salted caramel skin that is being burned at slow angst in the form of all the bad oranges in the world. So when you asked me that night what I see in the mirror when I stand in front of it, I remembered how last year I almost drowned in the sea. my legs lurched in fear of dying so i cried and cried for help till the salt from my eyes broke the oceans into halves which is why when i imagine myself i imagine salt burning the water that was it <laughs>
Wow. I mean, that was truly phenomenal. And I have a big, broad smile on my face. And I can't thank you enough for being here today with us. So it has been incredibly wonderful to have you here on our show, Kashmir. And conversations do stimulate the air of ideas. And it has been an honor to host you and witness the determination uh, that you have towards your community and beyond. So I'm sure our listeners had several takeaways from the reflections of your journey. Thank you, Shubha, for inviting me and for doing this. I've had a chance to listen to the previous podcast as well, and they've been brilliant. And you're doing a great job just having these young people like myself and like yourself just come and have a conversation and share their ideas. And truly kudos for that. And thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Well, with this, we wrap this episode of Guerrero and Beyond. See you all next week with yet another story that shall rekindle hope in all new ways for you.